So yes, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 13 to 21. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. Here are the words of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you just asking that you will speak mightily to us through your word, that you will take um, a book that we're going to talk about this morning that very often is, is one that we um, might struggle with reading, and yet just to see the, the beauty and the brilliance that you have for us in it. And we just pray that you will speak now in powerful ways. It's in the precious name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So even though I read out of a passage from 1 Peter, uh, today we're going to be in the book of Leviticus, and I, I just said to Eric before I came up here, I think this was uh, Dan's joke to give me Leviticus. Um, <laughs> uh, but I want to ask you this, how many of you have actually ever read the book of Leviticus all the way through? Show of hands. Hey, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Not bad. Now, here's the real honesty question. How many of you actually enjoyed it? Right. Ah, yeah, we got one. That's good. Okay? I'm glad we got one. And then secondly, how many of you felt like you, or thirdly, I guess, how many of you felt like you understood it? Yeah, a few of you, right? So-so. Leviticus, more than any other book of the Bible, with all of its laws, its sacrifices, its offerings and regulations, it can feel most disconnected from our Christian life and our experience of God today. But before we get into why it's not disconnected from our Christian life and ultimately, hopefully, why you shouldn't skip it in your Bible reading plan, for those of you who are kind of doing a, you know, through the Bible in a year, um, I want to give you a little background so that you understand why this, what this book is about and why God put it in the Pentateuch in the first place. In the Pentateuch, if you don't know what that is, that's the first five books of the Bible. So Leviticus, it's the third book in the Bible, and so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and its author is traditionally Moses. And again, uh, as Pastor Dan has mentioned, Moses is not only the author of Genesis, Exodus, but also Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books. And also, as we think about its placement within the Pentateuch, it's actually very fitting that it comes right after Exodus. And so, as it was mentioned last week, in Exodus 19 through 24, we get the covenant that God made 
with his people on Mount Sinai, right? So Moses is up on the mountain, and God's making this covenant with his people in chapters 19 through 24. Then, in chapter 34, we get the renewal of that covenant. If you remember what happened around there, there's the whole golden calf incident, um, the people of Israel sin, and then God renews his covenant with Israel. And then finally, the book finishes with the construction of the tabernacle and then God's glory filling it in Exodus 36 through 40. And so then, now with the covenant in place and the tabernacle built, this is where Leviticus comes in. Leviticus comes in to explain in greater details the regulations and ceremonies that were to govern the religious and civil life, civil life of the Hebrew nation in the tabernacle, the wilderness, and then ultimately looking forward to them going in and conquering the promised land in the book of Numbers. In fact, this is why many scholars believe that the book is actually set up the way it is. So you have the end of Exodus, you have the building of the tabernacle, and you have the glory of God filling the temple. Well, it's very interesting then that the first 16 chapters of Leviticus are all about the sacrifices, right? Because it comes right out, of, right out of Exodus. But then in chapters 17 to 28, they're mostly concerned with the civil life of the Israelites, which makes sense, especially because in the next book, which actually is only a month later from, from Exodus and to the, the beginning of Numbers, there's actually only like a month gap if you didn't know that. And so then in Numbers, we have the Israelites going into the land. So it makes sense that the the second half of Leviticus would be concerned with how they're supposed to live when they go into the land. And because the priests were the ones who were supposed to administer the sacrifices and they were kind of in charge of sort of regulating the civil life of Israel, Leviticus is often called the book or law of the priests, right? Because this is sort of a a manual for how the priests are supposed to regulate the religious and civil life of the Israelites. And yet, despite it in one sense being a manual for the priests and really for the whole nation of Israel for how they're supposed to live out their covenant relationship with God, there is an overarching idea or truth that God is trying to communicate through this book. And it's a truth that gets to the heart of who God is and what he desires for his people. And the main idea is this that God is holy, therefore we as his people must be holy. It's right up here in the title. Be holy for the Lord is holy. And so as we take sort of a, what I'm calling a 10,000 foot view of the book this morning, we're going to see how God has woven this great truth all throughout the book of Leviticus. And we're going to see how it still applies to us today. And again, it applies to us even though so many of the sacrifices and so many of the regulations have been fulfilled and set aside by Christ. And so with that in mind, I've got four main points that I want to look at today that kind of help us unpack this idea that God is holy, therefore we as his people must be holy. And those four main points are this. One, first and foremost, God is holy. Two, man is sinful. Three, God graciously and wondrously provides atonement for us. And then four, that God's people are called to obedience. And so let's start with the first one this morning, that God is holy. Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
And when we think of that word holy, what comes to mind? I think for many of us, it's kind of the idea of purity. And what we mean by that is that there's no presence of wrong. And in one sense, that's true. When we talk about God being holy, there is a sense that God is pure. There is no presence of wrong. He's never done anything wrong, and everything that he does is good and right. But that word holy, which actually is the word uh, kadosh in Hebrew, when applied to God, it does mean moral perfection, meaning that he's never done anything, anything wrong. He always does everything right. But it also means that he is completely separate from us. It hits at the idea that God is, is completely separate, is far superior to us, his creation, in every single way possible. And as we look at Leviticus, this idea of not only God's moral purity, but God being set apart becomes clear. Let's look at God's word here. Uh, Leviticus 1.3. It says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And now, if you know anything about Leviticus, what this is actually talking about and is one of the many offerings, and, and this one is a burnt offering. And now, I realize it's only one of the offerings, but what it does is it illustrates a point that is true of all the animal sacrifices in Leviticus and throughout Scripture. Whether it's, again, a burnt offering in chapter 1 here, a peace offering in chapter 3, a sin offering in chapter 4, there's guilt offerings in chapter 5, there's consecration offerings for the priests in chapters 8 and 9, we have the offering of the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, and we have the offerings for the giving of vows in chapters 27. It's a lot of offerings, <laughs> okay? But here's what they all have in common. All of these offerings require animals that are, that are without blemish, okay? Why is that? And the truth is, is that God in Scripture, time and time again, points out the fact that He is incompatible with anything that is not perfect or unblemished. And so this required them to sacrifice unblemished animals so that their offerings could be accepted by an unblemished and perfect God. Then in chapter 11, God gives them a list of clean animals that they can eat and unclean animals that they can't eat. And in response, in, in talking about that and giving a reason why he did that, he says this in Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, when we think about these kind of lists of clean and unclean animals, there's been a lot of people who have talked about why it, why it is that way. They'll be like, well, it's better for your health not to eat this animal versus this animal. And that might be true, right? That might be absolutely true, but that's not the main reason God gave those commands. The main reason that he gave those commands is because he is making it clear that it's about his holiness. He wants to display his separateness, his perfections. That's why he gave these lists of clean and unclean animals. And then beyond that, we have regulations that are called the holiness in chapters 18 through 22, the feasts, uh, in the holy feasts in chapter 23, and the holy regulations about the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee in chapter 26. And again, all of which are in Leviticus and are observed by the Israelites so that God's holiness was displayed, seen, 
and revered by his people. He wanted them to understand that he is God and that he is set apart, that there is no one else like him. But God's holiness, it isn't just limited to the book of of Leviticus. In fact, if you look all across Scripture, God's holiness is seen everywhere in every single book. And I'm just going to give you a few verses. So 1 Samuel 2.2, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Or in Psalm 99.9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And then 1 Peter 1.15, which is part of the, the passage that I read at the beginning, it says, He who called you is holy. And again, I could spend pretty much the rest of the sermon just reading verses that talk about God's holiness, right? There are so many in Scripture. But the point is that God, all throughout Leviticus and all throughout the Old Testament, is time and time again communicating and pressing upon us the fact that God is holy. He, yes, is morally pure and perfect, but he is also far superior to us, and he is set apart from us in every way. And so with all of that said, then the question is, why is that important? Why is it important that God is holy? And one, because holiness isn't just the reason, isn't just one reason we worship God, but it is the reason we worship God, right? We aren't just like, well, hey, one of the reasons that I like God is and follow Him is because He's holy. No, it is the reason. In fact, look to Revelation 4.8, and if you remember the scene here, you have the creatures that are, that are before the throne of God, and they're, they're saying this and worshiping God as they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These creatures are around the throne worshiping God for who he is. And the essence of who God is, is holy, right? It's it's his holiness. And I want you to know that we want and need God to be holy. Because all that God is, is perfectly loving and perfectly just and perfectly pure and perfectly gracious and perfectly powerful, etc., etc., etc. All of those things that you could say about God are all true and made possible because he's holy, because he's set apart. And therefore, if God, if he weren't holy, if he weren't perfect, pure, and far superior in every way, he wouldn't be God, right? We wouldn't want to worship him after God if God was not holy. So that's first. Second, God's holiness is important because we, all the other truths of Scripture begin to come into focus and require us to take them Seriously. So if the first point is that God is holy, then the second one flows from that, which is this. Second point this morning is that man is sinful. Leviticus 5.17 says, If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Now, I don't think I need to stand up here and, like, give you a lecture and try to convince you that, that man is sinful, right? Most of you, if you're here, you have an understanding that, that, that sin is a real thing and that people are sinful, that we miss the mark of walking in the perfect ways of our Creator God, and that we live in a society and a nation and a world where billions of people have rejected His ways. But I do think... 
I do think that we need to be reminded of how sinful we actually are. And not only how sinful we actually are, but how sin affects every area of our lives and creation. And so what I'm going to do is there's a lot of verses I'm going to walk through here, and they're going to show us the different sins in Leviticus and the different circumstances under which it needs to be dealt with in people and within God's creation. So the next slide here, we're going to kind of walk through a bunch of these. So Leviticus 4, 1 through 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands, commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Then in Leviticus 5.1, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. And I point both of those out because the first one's talking about unintentional sins, and then Leviticus 5.1 is very, very much talking about intentional sins. Next slide. Leviticus 6, 2 and 3. If, any, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, and any of all the things that the people do and sin thereby. And again, obviously a sacrifice would need to be made. And then this one in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2 is interesting because this is one of the few pieces of narrative that we actually get in Leviticus to kind of tell us what's happening during that time. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And so those are just kind of a few instances of just sin that's laid out in the book of Leviticus. But then if we keep going, in chapters 12 to 15, we see how sin has affected our bodies and creation. Is there are laws about leprosy and diseases in people, and not just in people, but also in houses. They actually had to do certain things. If there was sort of what they call a leprous disease found in their house, if they couldn't clean it, then basically the house needed to be destroyed. There was also um, kind of laws for dealing with discharges and need for purification after childbirth. Right, this idea that, that creation and our bodies are corrupt and need cleansing. But then it doesn't end there, and in fact, it actually it gets worse. Uh, Leviticus 18, if you've ever spent any time in that, I don't spend too much time in it, obviously read it, but it lays out, it's a, basically one long chapter of sexual sins, one whole chapter. And then in chapter 19, God tells people not to oppress one another, and then in chapter 20, he has to spend a bunch of time basically telling them what the punishments are for sacrificing their children, right? Because again, that was a common practice in the nations around them, and unfortunately, today it's still a common practice, right? Because abortion is a real thing. And then after all this, so that his people would understand the seriousness of their sins, God says in Leviticus 26, 21, and 22, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. That's a lot, right? I'm not going to explain sevenfold, but that's a lot. 
And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. Let me ask you this. Do you realize how bad sin actually is? Do you realize how depraved you are apart from a work of God in your life? And do you understand the reality that sin has cursed this world to the very core of it? Now again, you can read Leviticus and be like, oh, well, that's Leviticus. That's Old Testament, right? That's, that's something that, that's, that's over there that doesn't apply to us anymore. But if that's you, listen to these words, Paul's words in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Again, point being, there is not a single ounce of goodness in us, in and of ourselves. Next, Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of creation, fully and wholly, was corrupted by sin. Okay? And then lastly, Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So all of that put together just points to the idea that the weight and corruption of sin is so heavy, it is so total, that there is no way, there is no way in all creation that we can ever escape the holy and perfect judgment of God. On our own, it is absolutely impossible. And as a result, according to Isaiah, there is an infinite and unpassable separation between us and God. And so if that's our story, if that's who we are, apart from any work, anyone working on our behalf, all we can do is echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.24 when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And yet we know the end of the story. Right? We know that, that God in his perfections, that he has given us an answer to that most pressing question. And that's our third point for this morning. That God graciously provides atonement. So looking at Leviticus, Leviticus 4, 1 through 6, and then verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he, then she, he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And then verse 20, thus, thus he shall do with the, with the bull. 
As he did with the bowl of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. So according to the law, when someone sinned, and that was either intentionally or unintentionally, they were to bring this unblemished animal to the tabernacle. And once there, they were supposed to lay their hand upon the head of that animal. And that symbolically transferred their sin to that animal. And they would kill the animal, as it says, before the Lord. And the priest then would take the blood and would apply it to the altar. And in applying it to the altar, it says that the priest was then making atonement for that person and their sins could be forgiven. And now this word atonement in, in, in verse 20 is the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover, to ransom, or to wipe clean or purge. And this is a super important word. And the ESV, in fact, it is, it's um, in the Old Testament about 80 times in the ESV translation. 45 of those are found in Leviticus. Okay? So it's a really, really important word. And it's important because it answers the question of how we can be freed from the tyranny and captivity of sin and how we can overcome this infinite separation between us and God. And ultimately, Leviticus makes it clear that it comes through the shedding of blood as someone or something else pays the penalty of death for our sins. Their blood wipes us clean and ransoms us from the punishment that we deserve. And this should be a reminder to us as well that that not only do we serve a gracious God who's ultimately made a way of escape for us, but it's pretty amazing to realize that despite God being holy, despite God being set apart in all of his perfections, that we serve a God who actually wants to dwell with us and be with us. In fact, on the next slide here, as it says in Exodus 29, 45, it says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Isn't that amazing? Like when you think about the holiness of God and his perfections, the fact that there, this God still says, no, 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 I, I want to dwell with you. I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. But here's the problem. And again, we hopefully all know this well, but that the sacrifices in Leviticus, they needed to be offered continually meaning that they couldn't actually ever bring about the forgiveness of sins. This was a system that had no end in sight. This was something that they would have had to do forever and ever because it could never perfectly forever remove sin. And yet God in his mercy gave the people of Israel what is a foreshadowing of the greater sacrifice to come. In chapter 16, God gives us this yearly sacrifice called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, once a year, the high priest, he would, he would go in and he would make a sacrifice, and he would make a sacrifice not only for himself, he would make a sacrifice for all the priests, he would make a sacrifice to, to cleanse the, the, the tabernacle itself, and he would make a sacrifice for all of Israel to make atonement for all of their sins. As it says right here in Leviticus 16, and 34, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for the, for the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute uh, forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel since in the, once in the year because, all, because of all their 
sins. And it's in this once-a-year sacrifice that we have a picture and a pointing forward to the once-for-all sacrifice that was to come through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. As the author of Hebrew writes in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, or sorry, 1 and 4, he says, for since, the law was but a, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And then verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then in Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Only a holy God knew that we were held captive by the weight and corruption of sin. He knew that we deserve death and wrath for all the evil that we've committed against him. And yet, and yet, if you think about in Ephesians, it says, but God. He graciously provided a way for us to have our sins wiped clean and atoned for so that he could be our God and we could be his people. But again, it wasn't through the blood of bulls and goats, for those were only a foreshadowing of the good things to come. Instead, he gave us the once-for-all the once sacrifice of Christ, who not only wiped away our sin, but ransomed us from death and made us perfect in the sight of God so that we can have an eternal and forever relationship with the unchanging God, who, as Scripture tells us, that he dwells in unapproachable light. And so as we think about all of the things Leviticus teaches us, it teaches us that, that one, God is holy, that he's set apart. It teaches us about the weightiness of our sins. And yet it shows us God's goodness and mercy as it points forward to our need for the perfect atonement of Christ. But then lastly, the last thing it teaches us is this, and this is point four for this morning. And this might be the hardest one for us to take actually out of this whole message is that God calls us to obedience. Leviticus 20, verses 22 and 26. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And then in verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So it's super good. As we think about the book, the book of Leviticus and we think about all the scripture, it's super good to be reminded that God has made atonement for us, right? That, that God has made a way for us to be with him. But here's the opposite, or not the opposite, but the, another point to that is that we also need to remember why God has done that. What's the purpose in that? As I said earlier, chapters 18 through 27 of, Le of Leviticus, they are all about the ritual laws and regulations that the Israelites needed to follow. I mean, 18, 19, 20, 20, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. It's 10 chapters, all about laws and regulations that the people of Israel were to follow. And there's a lot of them, right? You can get so lost in them. But we might be left asking the question, like, why? Like, why so many things that they had to follow? 
Like, why did God get so specific? Because it's in the following of these regulations and laws that the people of Israel were showing themselves to be separate and distinct from the pagan nations around them. I'll say that again. It's in the following of these rituals and these laws that the Israelites were showing themselves to be separate from the pagan nations around them. And in this way, the Israelites were meant to be a witness to the holiness, the greatness, and the glory of their God. As it says in Isaiah 43, it's very familiar verses in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, as New Testament Christians, I think we, when we hear words like laws and regulations and obedience, especially in evangelical circles, we kind of roll our eyes at it a little bit, right? Because we know, we know that good works, when we talk about this a lot, that good works cannot earn us favor with God. Because we know that that favor has, has fully and wholly been earned for us through Christ. And that is absolutely true, right? We, we never want to forget that. But remember what Pastor Dan said last week, and I, I love this. I love this when he said this in Exodus. He said, just as the law was given to the Israelites after their freedom from Egypt, right? So the laws come after freedom. So too are we called to walk in obedience because we have been set free by Christ. So the Israelites were set free. They were given laws. We're set be free by Christ. We are called then to walk in obedience. As it says, next slide here in our opening passage from this morning, in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15, it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This holy, perfect, superior God has ransomed us to the penalty of sin through his son Jesus Christ, so that by his spirit, we would walk in obedience to his commands. That's it. Again, we do this not to earn his favor, but we do it to live for the purposes for which God created us. And that's to bring him glory, honor, and praise. Because that's what he rightly deserves. And now if you're here this morning, and again, hearing things like laws and regulations and obedience, maybe you struggle with that, maybe you hear that, and it feels like I've just heaped upon you some sort of lifeless, joyless burden. I want to tell you that even in the book of Leviticus, God is reminding the Israelites that there is joy, that there is blessing involved in obedience. Leviticus 26, verses 3 and 4. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains and their seasons, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And then in verse 12, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's good. 
That's good blessing from the Lord. The point being that, that what God has in store for us is his wondrous blessings. And if we want to experience the fullness of those blessings, then we need to walk in obedience to him. Let me say that again. You might have to think about that a little bit, right? That if we want to experience the fullness of God's blessings, then we need to walk in obedience to him. And if you think that this is only an Old Testament thing, this is definitely a New Testament thing, and it's a Jesus thing. John 15, verses 10 and 11, Jesus says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he's saying, keeping my commandments and abide in my love, right? That's obedience. Then he says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you about keeping his commandments, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's the exact same thing, right? So then the question for you, and the question that I want to end with is this. Do you want to experience the full blessings and joy of God in your life? Do you want that this morning? Then believe his words, take his commandments seriously, and keep them and seek to glorify and honor him with every moment of your life. This is the reason that you and I were created, to be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so good, it is so good just to think about the fact that you are a holy God, that you are so far beyond us. And yet as we just stand in awe of your holiness, as we see your perfections, it just makes it all the more clear how, how much we fall short of your perfect standard, how, how sin has just infected every part of us. And yet in your grace and your mercy, you have graciously provided us an atonement. You have provided us a way of escape through, the, through your son, Jesus Christ, that, that you have, through his death on the cross or the shedding of his blood, you have forgiven us of our sins and yet the, the wrath that we deserved, you put upon him instead. And yet you gave us his righteousness so that we can be perfect in your sight, that we can be your sons and daughters forever. And Lord, as good as that is, help us to, to live that, to walk that out in obedience as you have called us, as you have purposed us to do so that we can experience the fullness of who you are, that we can experience the blessings and the joy that you have for us. But also, Lord, so that your kingdom will be proclaimed, the lost will be saved, and that all honor, glory, and praise in all creation will be yours. And we pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as we continue in worship. Tremble at his voice, all creatures.
Come let us adore Him Behold our King Nothing can compare Come let us
Lord, we thank you for this morning and the picture that was painted of your great holiness and just the example of the cherubim continually around your throne, continually praising, continually worshiping you. That's a terrifying thing. And yet someday we will see it, Lord, if we have trusted in you, trusted in your work on the cross. Lord, we praise you.